listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right, good morning, everybody. Let's go. Mark chapter 15 is where we find ourselves. As for over a year now, we have been journeying through the gospel of Mark, and we're coming down to the end of our journey through Mark. In fact, we have three more messages. Today, we're going to finish up chapter 15. Next week, a beautiful passage on the resurrection of Jesus, verses 1 through 8. And then, um, we'll finish up the Gospel of Mark in three weeks, looking at verses 9 through 20 of Mark chapter 16, which are actually kind of a controversial group of verses. Um, there's lots of evidence that maybe Mark didn't write those verses, and so we're going to look at why we have that in our English translation and let that actually encourage us about the, the, uh, the reliability of what we have as our Bible. And then we are going to begin our journey through Peter's epistle, 1 Peter. And so we'll be in that for probably a couple months. So if you want to get a head start and start reading 1 Peter, I'd encourage you to do that. And as we mentioned, like something we used to do years ago when we first started the church about eight, seven, eight years ago, is when we'd go through shorter epistles in the New Testament that have lots of just short passages that are great for memorizing. Um, we're going to encourage anybody that wants to memorize portions of First Peter, or maybe a whole chapter, or maybe the whole book, to uh, memorize it. And then, occasionally, as we're working through First Peter, um, we may even, during our service, before the sermon, just have a couple microphones out, and if you want to get up and give us, you know, four or five verses out of the, that chapter that we're going through, we'd love for you to do that. We're not going to call on anybody, so I don't want this place to be empty when we start First Peter, <laughs> but it's just like volunteer basis. So listen, if you um, don't have a Bible and you're using one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you, you can find Mark chapter 15 on page 852. And if you're not used to looking up or if you don't have a Bible, um, I'd love for you to just keep that Bible and make it, make it your own. Before I pray, let me just piggyback on something that Springer said about tonight, about the one another meeting. Um, that is just a member meeting, which is not just for members, but it's open for everybody that wants to learn more about Crosspoint or just discovering what we're all about. You just kind of want to figure out, you know, kind of behind the scenes. I'd love for you to come tonight. And especially if you're a member, um, I'd really love for you to make these one another member meetings a sort of regular rhythm of your life. We do only six of them a year, generally the first Sunday of every other month. This particular uh, month, it's the second Sunday because last weekend was a holiday weekend and we realize a lot of people are out of town. And so we're doing it on the second Sunday of September. So we do them in January, March, May. July, September, and November, six of them a year, and we do some important things at these meetings. It's not some dry business meeting where people get up and read, you know, um, I don't know, stuff that people read at church business meetings, or we don't fuss at each other and, you know, hurl insults across each other, across the sanctuary about the color of the carpet, or I mean, we just, I don't know what your preconceived notions are about these types of things, but just, you know, forget them, and if you're part of Crosspoint Church, come tonight, because and um, we do some really important and encouraging things. One thing is that we're going to receive some new members tonight. Um, that's part of your responsibility as a congregation to know who is a member of the church so that you can care for them. 
We're going to hear some missions updates from two young people at Crosspoint that have spent the summer um, in other parts of the world, and they're going to give us really encouraging updates about the Lord's work. And then we're going to pray for each other as a church, and that is a really important time for us to hear the needs of what's going on in the body and to pray. And then we're just going to greet one another and love one another, and we're going to just informally care for one another as we linger before and after the time. Friends, it is really, really important. And so if you call Crosspoint Church home, I really would love for you to come. Uh, and, and hey, if you can't make it tonight, there's no guilt. I'm not going to wake up Monday morning mad at you. I'm not taking attendance. But just, I, I, I would encourage you to make that sort of a regular rhythm of your life throughout the year, six times a year. All right, let's get into it. Mark chapter 15. Let me pray, and then let's ask the Lord to help us. My plan is merely to work through this longer and really incredible text about the most important event in the history of the world, the crucifixion and the forsaking of God the Son on the cross, the forsaking of God the Son not just by mankind. We've been reading about that as we build up to this event, but also the forsaking of the Son, even by the Father, for the sake of the redemption of His people. And so these are some of, and in fact, in this text is a question that is maybe the most important question ever asked. And so we'll work our way through it and gaze at the crucified and forsaken King Jesus. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll, we'll work through it. Well, Father, we come to you thankful for your grace to us. We pray for your grace as we open up your scriptures. We are well aware, as Springer has prayed for us earlier in our gathering, that there are Christians in other parts of the world, in Egypt and Syria and many places that we have not mentioned or we're not even thinking about where Christians are being persecuted and where they do not enjoy the freedoms that we do. So I pray that we would come humbly and aware of your grace to us and that it would not be in vain, that your blessings to us as a people would not be a sort of cul-de-sac that makes us lazy, but that it would humble us so that we might see Jesus today in this text so that we might be a better display of Jesus to an onlooking world because we are here not for ourselves but for the glory of the crucified and risen King. We exist for you, not the other way around. So help us, Lord, as, as a people who are uh, beaten down, who are self-absorbed, who are worried and anxious, Help us, give us the kind grace to redirect our hearts and our gaze so that we would see Jesus. As we sang today, Lord, our desire is to behold our God. And if we could just see Jesus, Lord, that would cure a thousand ills. The counterfeit pleasures and the inconsequential anxieties that so easily distract us, would fade in the glory of His grace. And so, Lord, would you give us that gift today of eyes to see Jesus, 
so that Christians in this room, their hearts would be stirred and warmed afresh with worship. And that people in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, just the beauty of your amazing love would melt their icy heart so that they would trust in Jesus. Help us now. Help me, Lord. And I pray that our time in your scriptures would be profitable. I pray these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people and for the salvation of people that are in this room that might not yet be trusting in you. Lord, would you do these things? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's start in verse 21. Page 852 of the Bible, if you're using that one. We've just finished uh, looking last week at Jesus. His, they were mocking him. And we see Jesus now about to be crucified. And so in verse 21, as he's walking to that hill, it says this. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. By the way, that's fulfilling prophecy in Psalm 22, where it says that Jesus refused, that he offered him this wine and he would not take it fulfilling. You see so much prophecy being fulfilled in this week here that we've been studying for the past month or so. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Verse 24, and they crucified him and divided his garments also, fulfilling prophecy in Psalm 22. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Let me just pause there and just sort of note the detail that Mark gives us. If you've noticed that Mark is the shortest gospel, there's only 16 chapters, and one of the things that's marked Mark's gospel is the, the quickness with which he moves through events. And he is especially concerned with writing to a Roman culture, to the church, primarily the Christians in Rome who come from a militaristic society. And one of the things that marks the way Mark has written his gospel is the quickness and the brevity and the to-the-pointness of Mark's gospel. And he doesn't often include many details, but in this case, he does include this seemingly sort of irrelevant detail about this man, Simon of Cyrene, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, we read later on in the New Testament, at the end of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans about this man named Rufus, who was very likely this man mentioned here. And so what's happening is Mark is just giving us sort of this evidence of the historical reliability of these events. So there was this real man named Simon of Cyrene who had these two real sons named Alexander and Rufus who the church in Rome would very likely have known who these two notable people were. And so there's just all of this sort of evidence that the Bible is not, it's not sort of just it's not this flowery kind of religious text like, like, like a book of virtues. It, it, is, it is a historical narrative of what actually happened. And when we see these little details in there, it should increase our faith that the Bible is recording events that actually happened and that it would have been verifiable or able to be denied or affirmed by people living 
they were reading, but it was affirmed clearly because there was a man named Rufus and Alexander that were the sons of this man. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. So the third hour, the Jews would have normally marked the start of their day by 6 a.m. as being beginning of the day. So the third hour would have been 9 a.m. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Let's just stop and take in the stunning and brazen disgust of this crowd looking at Jesus. This man, Jesus, who has done nothing but good, as we've been reading through Mark's gospel, he has cured innumerable people of diseases, physical ailments. He's cast out demons that have been plaguing people for their lifetime. Remember in Mark 5, that demoniac that Jesus cured, that man that was banned to the outside of the city, and Jesus gives him freedom. We see Jesus calming storms. We see him feeding the hungry stomachs of thousands of people, not once, but twice. We see Jesus bringing back to life the dead child of a man named Jairus. We see Jesus doing nothing but good. And yet, because his message of not just good works, but that People must trust in him as their only hope, which threatened the religious system of the people, and it threatened the political power of Rome, and it threatened everybody's desire to make much of themselves and earn their salvation. Jesus is now on the cross, the creator being scorned by his created. I think we just need to take that in and let that sit on us and weigh on our hearts. There's something about wagging your head, like shaking your head, that just communicates a certain amount of disgust and contempt and scorn. <laughs> you ever got your head just, you ever had somebody just shake their head at you and they just kind of give you that look like you're just, oh, that, doesn't that just cause something to rise up in you? Am I the only one with a bit of a temper I'm still dealing with? I think I've told this story several years ago um, about this time when I got uh, the head shake from an elderly lady who could not have been younger than 85. You know Publix over there in Bradley Park? Um, and if you're driving towards Whitesville Road and Publix is on your left, and then at the end of that building there, there's a dry cleaner. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? And if you are too lazy to actually get out of your car and walk your dry cleaning into the dry cleaner, you can turn left there so that your driver's side window, you can just hand your clothes through the window, right? 
The only problem is it's, it's, you kind of have to, there's no lanes there, but you kind of have to get over on the other side. And so if you're going towards Whitesville Road with Publix on your left, there's like a little rental car place. And then if you're going to turn left to get your, you have to kind of get in sort of the wrong side of traffic, right? And so um, thoughtful drivers will go a little slow there and kind of see if there's anybody coming in that back little entrance to Publix, which I did. I was slowing down because I knew I wanted to hug the building so that I could get my window, you know, right there and hand my clothes or suit or whatever to the dry cleaner. And about that time, um, a a lady who... uh, well, she's one of our elderly citizens. She was driving um, a very big, like, car. And she saw me coming, and so I was kind of uh, slowing down there, and I was telling her, no, you, I was stopping, so she was wondering what I was doing. And she's coming there right by the dry cleaner. And I'm kind of, you know, w- waving her on. She's waiting for me, thinking that I should move, which she was right, but she didn't understand. I kind of wanted to hug the building, and so she's, she's looking at me, and I'm, I'm waving her on, and and she's realizing that I want to get where she is, which is technically incorrect, but I kind of had a reason because I wanted to get over there close to the... And she wasn't understanding my intentions, and she looked at me with just disgust. Isn't it weird how when you're in a car, when people sort of give you the look like you imbecile, it doesn't it just make you matter in a car? What is that about us? And so this elderly lady gave me the head wag. She just looked at me and said, Ugh, you whippersnapper. <laughs> you know, I can just imagine. But I forgot to mention that she also had, on her left shoulder arm as she was driving, she had a very small dog. <laughs> Perched. <laughs> on her arm as she was driving. And I got angry at her anger at me. And so I wanted to communicate to her that she really didn't have the right to wag her head at me and that she's living in a glass house because she's got a dog on her shoulder while she's driving. And so as she's wagging her head at me, I'm pointing. You got a dog on your shoulder. <laughs> if that was your great-grandmother, I am so sorry. If you have heard that story from the other point of view at Thanksgiving dinner, because there's something in me, friends, that when I get the head wag, it causes me anger and scorn. And I am, friends, we are by no means righteous. And here, I mean, I just want us to take in the grace, like the, wis- the, the, the restraint, the, the meekness, the humility of God on the cross, getting the head wag and the scorn and the brazen disgust of the very people that he created that he's laying down his life to redeem. The humility of God the sun on the cross is, uh, it's, it's indescribable. And it should humble us, and it should melt our icy, distracted hearts. Verse 31, 
So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. I mean, isn't there just amazing haughtiness even in that statement? I mean, think of all the things that Jesus has done already, miraculously. I mean, they wouldn't really believe that. In fact, he does come back from the grave in three days. It tells me that no matter the miracle, even if it's coming back from the dead, no matter the miracle, we are still needing grace to see and believe Jesus, right? I think sometimes there's streams of Christianity that, that wants us to say, well, if, if, if God would just do this thing, then that will display his power and people will believe. And so let's pray for miracles or healing or these things or this particular sign or whatever. And I think we should pray for God to move and we should pray for God to heal. But friends, I want us to be humbled by the fact that even though Jesus does all of these miraculous Things, these signs, these miracles, the, the calming of the storm, the, the feeding of the multitudes, the healing of the demoniacs, the healing of all the sicknesses, and even the defeating of death by raising this young girl from the grave earlier in Mark chapter 9, and then ultimately, which we'll see next week in Mark chapter 16, the coming back himself from the grave, even those signs, none of those things necessarily cause people to believe we are still completely, utterly stubborn and dead in our sins and completely needing God to give us eyes to see even the one who does all these things. You see, Christianity, trusting in Christ, is not like a, a math problem or a science experience, uh, uh, experiment that if there's just enough empirical evidence, then I'll believe. Friends, our hearts are so cold and unbelieving and dead that even if Jesus comes back from the grave, even then we need God's grace to believe. Let that humble us. Like, let that, let that produce in us a humility. Like, if we're, we are Christians not because we're educated Americans or that we live in the West. In fact, some of that may actually hinder us from humbly seeing Jesus. And so they said, let this Christ come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So we know from reading the other gospel accounts that there's these two robbers. We, we read it just a few verses before in verse 27. There's these two robbers that were crucified with Jesus, and it says there that they also reviled him. But we also know from the other accounts, I think in Luke chapter 23, Luke adds a little bit more detail about how one of those robbers, after at least spending some time reviling Jesus, right before he passed away, before he died on the cross, he actually repented and trusted in Jesus. And so what, what are we to make of that? One writer says about how one, one of those criminals, one of those thieves on the cross that's crucified with Jesus, repents and believes at the last hour, and Jesus says, you will, you will be with me in paradise today, that we should, we should look at that and we should see that one who at the last hour, the last minutes of his life, does repent and receive grace. We should look at that and see that there is one, in a sense, on his deathbed that repents. And that should cause us not to despair because Jesus' grace extends all the way even no matter what your life has been like. Even at the last hour, a person can truly trust in Jesus 
But we should also see that there's only one that's recorded in the scriptures so that we should not presume that we can just sort of wait. In fact, I see that as a sort of common subconscious mindset amongst young people. Yeah, I'll just live it up. I'll go do my thing in college. And eventually I will kind of get my life straightened out and then I'll trust in Jesus when I settle down and need to get a job and, you know, have a mortgage and an electrical bill. Well, the, the problem with that, friends, is that you are presuming on the grace of God and Romans chapter 2 says that repentance is a gift and do not presume on the kindness of God. But yet we see this graciousness of Jesus even at the end of this man's life. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, so that would have been noon, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which would have been 3 o'clock. So from 12 noon to 3 o'clock, there was complete darkness. And some say, well, there was an eclipse of the sun. Well, even in an eclipse of the sun, there's not total darkness like there is here. And secondly, we know from the festival of the Passover that this would have been during a full moon, not an eclipse of the moon. And so there is this, even here at the end, just this incredible sign, this darkness during the midday. What's going on there? Clearly, and we'll read here in just a second, God is, God the Father is judging, not just the treatment of his son, but judging Jesus' work on the cross is laying sin on the Holy One. And it brings about this physical darkness as the Father forsakes the Son for us. Let's keep reading in verse 34. The most dreadful and terrible and important question ever asked. And at the ninth hour meaning three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried with a loud voice in Aramaic, a language he would have spoken most commonly, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the Son is speaking to the Father and is recognizing that the Father is turning, forsaking the Son. Why? We'll get to that in a moment. Verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah, which he wasn't, but in the language, Elijah and Eloi would have sounded, My God, the word my God, Eloi, and the name Elijah sounded very much alike. And Elijah was taken up by God in the Old Testament, and there was this common sort of myth and understanding that Elijah, who didn't die, but who was taken up by God in the Old Testament, was this, this sort of helper for those in distress. And so they were thinking that Elijah was maybe going to come, that maybe he was calling for Elijah, but they just misunderstood what Jesus was saying. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah, verse 36. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down, wanting to just revive him a, a bit to see if Elijah would come. And in verse 37, it says, and Jesus uttered a loud cry 
and breathed his last. So let's get back to that most important and terrible question ever asked in verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To answer that question, we need to do a little bit of investigation in the Old Testament. So let me go back to Isaiah 53, a book and a prophecy written about Jesus hundreds of years before his birth and life and death. And this is what the Old Testament prophet writes about the suffering servant Jesus in Isaiah 53, maybe a very familiar chapter to some of us. Let me read. In fact, I think it would be helpful for me to read all 12 verses of Isaiah 53. And this is speaking about Jesus, the suffering servant, and about what's happening here on the cross. So listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking now prophetically about the suffering servant Jesus, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. By the way, that means that Jesus did not look like, which is commonly depicted in some of our paintings of Jesus, he did not look like a handsome Italian-Spanish soccer hero. <laughs> right? Jesus was an average-looking Jewish Middle Eastern man with dirt underneath his fingernails, with hair on his back, a regular blue-collar guy like us didn't have piercing blue eyes and olive skin and his hair pulled back in a ponytail. He was a rugged, regular human being who didn't float through life on a little Luke Skywalker cloud. His hands were dirty. His clothes were dirty. He was a rugged, blue-collar carpenter with calluses on his hands and a sore back when he finished a project who hungered and thirst and was tired because he experienced everything that we experienced. Friends, this is so important because in the book of Hebrews it says that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are. So in this strange and beautiful and inexplainable way, he is the perfect God Fully God, completely God, never ceasing to be God in the flesh, but yet fully human, righteous, perfect flesh. Going through, acquainted with, not foreign to anything that you and I have gone through. Beautiful. The God-man. No former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, listen to this. Surely he has borne our griefs. Friends, this is written hundreds of years before Jesus was crucified on the cross. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. We're starting to get down to the answer of the question of why did God forsake Jesus? He was smitten by God. So God the Father, he was smitten by God the Father. God the Son smitten by God the Father and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Listen to this. And the Lord has laid on him, so God the Father has laid on God the Son the iniquity of us all. Friends, this is the very heart of the Bible, the very heart of the gospel, the very heart of the Christian message, that we are sinners, that we have all rebelled against God in some way, some more obvious, some more internal, and that that sin has separated us from the holy presence of God our Creator and made us completely unable to atone for our own sin. And in response to that, God comes to us in the person of Jesus, God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son in the flesh, and God the Father puts the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever trust in Jesus on the spotless, innocent, faultless Jesus. And so on Jesus, God the Father lays the iniquity of us all. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He says that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So friends, what's happening on the cross? Jesus is not just laying down his life as a sort of example of humility or selflessness or sacrifice. He is bearing the punishment of, of all those who would ever turn and trust. He is bearing the holy wrath of the holiness of God on the cross for the sin of His people. And so God the Father in His holiness is necessarily forsaking the Son in this sense by making the perfect spotless Lamb the scapegoat bearing the sin that he could not look at, that he had to forsake Jesus in that moment for the sake of the securing of the redemption of his people, for the sake of atoning, of once and for all satisfying God's holiness on the cross. Verse 7, he was oppressed. Back now in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent be, before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the, people of, for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. We'll read about that in a second. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Listen to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So these events that we've been reading, it's led up to Jesus' death. In fact, the whole of Jesus' life is not God reacting to a situation gone horribly wrong but it is in the preordained plan of God to secure the redemption of his people through putting forth his son Jesus as 
the sacrifice for their sins. So on the cross, God is putting forth God to satisfy the holiness of God. Do you get that? God puts forth God. God the Father puts forth God the Son out of love for his creation to satisfy his own holiness because we couldn't for the salvation and redemption and reconciliation of his people. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's all who would ever trust in Jesus. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he, was pour, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So what's happening on the cross is that God the Father is forsaking God the Son necessarily for the redemption of his people. So God the Father is putting forward God the Son who alone can bear the weight of the holiness of God to satisfy it, extinguish it. As we read that beautiful quote from Spurgeon a couple of weeks ago, to drink damnation. And the curtain, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So what's happening there? is that in the temple where this huge curtain was blocking off the holy of holies where the priests would do the sacrifice of the animals for centuries and centuries and centuries and blocking off the holiness of God's presence there from the people has now been torn in two from top to bottom. This is a thick curtain. It's impossible. I mean, this isn't the power team tearing up phone books at a crusade. <laughs> I mean, this is a miraculous act here where this thick curtain is torn from top to bottom. What does that signify? It signifies that Jesus, through his work on the cross, bearing God's holiness, has opened up the way to the Father. So let me, let me read to you from Hebrews. I know we're reading a lot of Scripture other than our text, but this is so important. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, and let me read from Hebrews 9 and a little bit out of 10. This is what the writer of Hebrews is showing us. There's this connection between this Old Testament sacrifice and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which there was a lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place, and behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And so there's this curtain. This is a tent in the wilderness, but later we see it's in a physical place in Jerusalem in this temple that, that this curtain that we just read about was torn. And in behind this curtain represents this presence of God, which is life. To be in God's presence is to be in life. And this curtain 
blocks people off because of their sin from the holiness of God because to be in the presence of God with your sin unatoned for was to die. And so to protect the people from the dreadful, awesome holiness of God, there's this curtain that that is pointing forward to Jesus' work on the cross. So in verse 6 of Hebrews 9, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their rituals. He's speaking about the Old Testament. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, speaking of the Day of Atonement, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, meaning this temple, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Okay, so let me stop there and say that what's happening is that the writer of Hebrews is pointing back to the Old Testament, and he's saying that there was this temple, this holy place that was cordoned off by a curtain, and that once a year this priest would sacrifice bulls and goats and animals for the sins of the people, okay? And all of that ultimately never actually dealt with sin, It was just pointing forward to this day when sin would finally and fully be dealt with by Jesus on the cross that we just read about. In fact, the whole Old Testament, that whole sacrificial system in Leviticus, the the prophecy that we read in Isaiah is just pointing us forward to this time when ultimately redemption will come. And so, skip down to verse 23 of Hebrews 9. It says, Thus it was necessary for the copies, or these shadows in the Old Testament, of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Verse 24. Listen to this. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. So Jesus doesn't have to go every year to the cross like the Old Testament priests did. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So friends, it's really important that you see this. This is what's happening when this, when this curtain is being torn from top to bottom. All of the Old Testament, all of the sacrifices, all of the animals that were killed, all of the priests that would yearly go into this holy of holies, the presence of God, are pointing forward to this moment that we have just read about where Jesus once and for all deals with human sin once and for all, atones for it, satisfies it, erases the guilt and the punishment for human sin by taking it upon himself and now opens up a new and living way. So he doesn't just remove sin, he makes access to God which is life now possible on the cross because he was forsaken for us. And then in verse 39, let's keep reading. 
It says, and when this centurion, this Roman soldier, who stood facing him, maybe likely one of the ones that was wagging his head at him, chastising him, uh, beating him earlier, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in, linen, in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Remember what we read in Isaiah 53, that this rich man, he would be with this rich man in his death. And Joseph, this rich man, is fulfilling that prophecy. Wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and the, Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. A couple things about this last segment that we've read before we end is that we see here really three people or groups of people that show us the grace of God. Up to this point, we've seen Jesus being forsaken by people, by his followers, by the Romans, by the Jews. But yet we see that here, this Roman centurion sees Jesus. And we see these women who would not have been uh, notable citizens. We see them faithfully following Jesus to the end. And we even see one of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, is one of the religious council, the Sanhedrin, that is bringing about the crucifixion of Jesus falsely before the Romans, we see even one of them turning him, seeing Jesus and trusting. So friends, as we see all of humanity forsaking Jesus here at the end, we also see that we don't have to just be caught up in a number, that there's grace. There's grace for a Roman centurion, there's grace for these poor women, and there's grace for this religious elite. And so as we look at ourselves and we say, oh, well, I'm, I'm never the type of guy that could, could trust in Jesus. No, even here at the end, we see these beautiful drops of grace, these examples of people, individuals, turning and trusting and following Jesus at the end. So what has God done with human sin and rebellion? The Holy Father has judged sin by laying it on the holy, innocent Son on the cross. So friends, that means that the penalty of sin for all those that are trusting in Jesus has been removed. That means there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that if we're going through a difficult situation, if we're Christians, that God is not punishing us. 
God is not some sort of karma-like deity who has a voodoo doll up there that once we become Christians, depending on whether or not we have a good day, is punishing us. Jesus has absorbed and satisfied and completely removed the penalty of sin. Now that does not mean that God does not chasten and correct us and allow us to suffer the consequences of our continuing sin, but it does mean that God in Christ has removed the penalty for sin. There is, Romans 8, 1, now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And friends, that is really important because as we look at our lives after we become Christians, it's important for us to rightly interpret our events. God is not punishing us, and therefore we should not punish other Christians, because sin and its penalty for those who are in Christ has once and for all been dealt with. The penalty of sin has been removed. That's our justification in Jesus. The power of sin has been broken, not completely, but partially for the rest of our life so that we now live this process of sanctification whereby we still, even though the penalty of sin has been removed from our lives as Christians, we now have to deal with the minimized, broken power of sin. Why? Why doesn't God just eradicate all sin for us after we become Christians? Because he wants to show as a display to an onlooking world the surpassing, surpassing worth of Christ. So as we fight sin, and even as we live our lives of sanctification before an unlooking world, we become a display of the beauty and worth of trusting in Jesus. And then there's coming that day when he will finally glorify his people and he will remove the presence of sin as we stand before him face to face. And friends, that's for those that are in Christ. And one thing I want to communicate in all humility and love is that what Jesus has done on the cross does not apply to us just because we're Americans who live in the Bible Belt. It applies to us if we have turned from trusting in ourselves and we turn in faith and trust towards Jesus. In fact, Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 36, that in the Son is life. Whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. But whoever does not believe and trust in Jesus, the wrath of God remains on him. So friends, as we read this beautiful, haunting text where God the Father forsakes God the Son for his people, the question is, are you in Christ? Are we in Christ? That, that's what it means to be a Christian to take God's side against your sin. Is that, is that where you are this morning? What a shame it would be for us to read through the crucifixion of God the Son and say, oh wow, what, a, what an amazing act of love. How humbling, how beautiful, how awe-inspiring without saying, does that apply to you? And is that the loudest note in your life? The loudest chorus in your life? The crucified, forsaken son who bore the weight of our punishment by a holy, beautiful, loving God. Well, friends, if that's you, if that is your confession, let that melt your heart. Let it drive your life. Let it humble you. Let it be the lens through which you look at all of life. 
And friends, if it's not you, if God in his kindness has shown you that you are not trusting in Jesus, but you're trusting in yourself, I'm asking you merely to look away from yourself and look to Jesus and to see the crucified and forsaken king who commands you even now to repent, to turn away, to trust in him and to love him even now. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we, as we come now, I pray that you would help us see the enormity, the beauty, and the weight of sin. It is my default instinct to minimize sin, especially my own. And on the cross, we see the price of rebellion against a holy, good, righteous God. Lord, maybe before we can rightly worship you, we have to rightly see the the horror and the disgust of our rebellion against the holy and righteous God. Lord, help me see that. Help us see that. And Lord, for those of us who are trusting in Christ this morning, I pray that we would rightly see sin and then that would help us rightly see the magnitude and the glory of your love for us, that you would pour out your wrath, not on us, but on God the Son on the cross because He alone could endure it. He alone could atone for it. Lord, help, help us to see that and help that to drive our lives. Help that to humble us. Help, help us to see that. And Lord, for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, would that amazing love melt their hearts so that they would see Jesus. Lord, do these things, I pray, for your glory and for our good. And may we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.